can you learn how to be happy? Yes, and it turns out that's exactly what we're gonna do in this video. In fact, by the end of the video, you'll be perfectly happy. Okay, that last part's probably not true. But still, it is something that can be studied and our next guest has studied it and has really important facts about how you can become more happy. It's Dr. Robert Waldinger, he is the author of The Good Life, The Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. He's also a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, the director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development at Massachusetts General and co-founder of the Lifespan Research Foundation. All right, Dr. Waldinger, welcome. Thank you, nice right. to be here. Thank you, brother. Uh, so I'm gonna tell you a quick thing about um, what I've learned about happiness through the guests that I've interviewed and then get your reaction, okay? So uh, I have interviewed, for example, Russell Brand and a very famous uh, actor and I asked him, hey, did uh, becoming famous make you more happy? And his answer was no. Uh, then I interviewed Ray Dalio, one of the richest people in the world. Did becoming incredibly wealthy make you happy? No. Uh, now, Ray's generally happy more than the other two, okay? But but the wealth didn't necessarily do it. And uh, and then I asked um, uh, uh, Norman Lear, one of the most successful television producers of all time, seven out of the top ten TV shows once were once his. Does success make you happy? And he was like, mm, no. Uh, so I found that very very interesting. So now you've studied this for a very long time. Um, so. One, I assume you're not surprised by those results. Not at all, and I'm thinking you did your homework perfectly for what we're gonna talk about tonight. Yeah, indeed, I'm obsessed with this topic. That's why I love having you on here. Um, so yeah. uh, let me start out super broad and then we'll dive into details. So what does make you happy? <laughs> well, we found to our surprise that Relationships, good relationships with other people make you not only happy, but they keep you healthier. They keep your body healthier. They keep your brain healthier as you go through life. And at first, we didn't even believe our own data until other research groups began to find the same thing. That is super interesting. So uh, this is an 84 year study, by the way. So it's it's not like, oh well, maybe they got it a little wrong because their sample was too small. No, the sample is enormous. Um, and so uh, people are often, of course, wrong about what makes them happy. We'll come back to that as well. But what, what is it about relationships uh, that has it at number one for factor that is more likely to make you happy? Yeah. Well, the the fact that we're always facing challenges in our lives means that we always need support in one way or another. And many different kinds of support. You know, we need people to have fun with, we need people to confide in, we need people to drive us to the doctor, to loan us the right tools, whatever, right? So we need many things. We are not islands. And what we find is that the more good connections we have, the more sources of support we have. When stuff comes along, like a pandemic that none of us could have foreseen, you know, so that there's just so many waves of challenge that come at all of us in our lives. And it turns out that if we have good connections, we weather those challenges so much better and therefore we're happier. So, Dr. Um, I can also talk a little. Uh, go, no, ahead. No, go ahead. 
Well, I was gonna say at some point, uh, we can also talk about how it works with our health. How, how do relationships get into our bodies and change our physiology? Because that was the thing we didn't believe at first. All right, that's super interesting. We're gonna get to it, number two and number three things that make you happy, the first step to happiness, all that wonderful stuff's coming up. But now you got me interested, how does it change your physiology? Yeah, well, it seems the best hypothesis is that relationships help us regulate stress. That stress is always coming our way in life, that what happens when we're faced with a stressor or a threat is we go into fight or flight mode. Naturally, the body revs up, You know, heart rate goes up, all kinds of changes, and that's normal. We want that to happen to be able to meet a challenge. But then when the threat is removed, we wanna be able to go back to baseline. And if you think about it, if something really upsetting happens to you in your day and you feel yourself churning about it, if you have somebody you can talk to, you can literally feel your body calm down, go back to equilibrium. What we think happens is that the people who don't have those kinds of relationships, the people who are lonely, the people who are socially isolated, those people stay in a kind of low level fight or flight mode all the time. So they have higher levels of circulating cortisol, they have higher levels of chronic inflammation. And that those things break down body systems so that loneliness, social isolation can predict on the one hand that you might be more likely to get coronary artery artery disease and alternatively that you might get arthritis because multiple body systems break down when we are chronically revved up from stress. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And uh, and I, I knew I would love this conversation. So that part I didn't know and that, that's that's a excellent point. Um, I, I have another theory as to why uh, Societal connections is is the number one factor in happiness. Um, it's because we're pack animals, and so if we're with the pack, uh, we our DNA tells us that hey, that's where you're supposed to be. And if you're, especially if you're excluded from the pack, that that creates an enormous amount of stress for us. Yes, you are naming something that we think is the result of evolution. We believe, and again, you, we can only speculate that human beings evolved to be pack animals because it's safer to be in a crowd. It's safer to be in a pack. You're more likely to be able to reproduce and pass on your genes if you have a tribe, right? And so we believe that we got selected out, those of us who are more affiliative, those of us who cluster into tribes, because we're the people who were more likely to survive over the ages. Yeah, that makes sense. But in popular mythology and conventional wisdom, that is not how people perceive happiness, right? So there's an interesting study and survey that you had in chapter one of your book about in 2007, millennials were asked what their number one goal is. And 76% of them said becoming rich and 50% said becoming famous. Why are those wrong? What do people misunderstand about achievement? Well, achievement can actually feel good if we're doing something that that's meaningful. So 
you know, when you when you put something out into the world like you're doing right now and you care about doing that, that's satisfying. But if you win some badge of achievement, eh, that only lights you up for a few minutes. You know, even people who win the Nobel Prize get depressed right afterwards. If they've come to believe, oh, when I win the Nobel Prize, then I'll finally be happy. Because that isn't what happens for us. So achievement can be meaningful if you're doing something you care about. But if you're just after the badge of achievement, nah, it's not gonna do it for you. The problem I think is that our culture sends us these messages all day long that are not true. They send us the message that you know, if you get rich, you're gonna be happy. If you achieve a lot, you'll be happy. If you get famous, you'll be happy. And you found in your research, right, on this show that that's not the truth for many of those people you interviewed. But the culture keeps telling us, no, 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 just buy these things, achieve these things, get famous, and you'll be happy. Yeah, and it, another thing that culture never tells you is that an entire culture can be wrong. Um, yeah. Right, the Aztecs were positive that human sacrifice would bring them good luck. And they all believed it, and they were all wrong. And that's right. And and our version of that is Instagram. Uh, <laughs> where we yeah. See yes. Yeah, and um, okay, so we know what's wrong. We know that, hey, don't chase what conventional wisdom is telling you. And once, even if you got rich and famous, you're not necessarily gonna be happy at all, right? So, okay, we know what not to do. How about, okay, and, and we know the uh, one of the important things is make social connections. What else, what's, what's yeah. the second and third factor? Well, the second thing, and probably it might even be the bigger thing, is taking care of our health. So what we found was that the people who took care of their health, regular exercise, eating decently, not becoming obese, not abusing drugs and alcohol, that those people lived years longer than the people who did not take care of their health. And you know, on the one hand, that's old news, but boy, the the scientific evidence is so dramatic. And so, so that- you know, as, as one of our one of our study members said, take care of your body as though you're gonna need it for a hundred years. Yeah, and wouldn't that be great? Um, <laughs> so, but is there a causal connection there? Because I can see how people who are more unhappy would become more addicted to drugs or alcohol. And so the connection yes. might go in the opposite direction. You are absolutely right that these things don't just go in one direction, they're often synergistic, right? And the same way with relationships that often if we lose our health, it's harder to have the energy to make relationships, to keep relationships. So health allows us to make relationships and good relationships protect our health. And um, I've heard in other um, uh, uh, speeches and studies, for for example, I went to a speech from Professor Seligman from Penn uh, talking about happiness. And uh, and they ranked uh, being appreciative uh, super high on their list. Have you guys seen that as well? Yes, and there have been a bunch of studies now. So Seligman's work is part of that, but there are other studies too that that show that when we actually 
feel grateful when we conjure up an image of somebody we're grateful for and 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 actually when we express it we get little hits of well-being it feels good and it protects our health um and so in some ways you know it can sound hokey to do that but we find that if you get people to remember what they're grateful for each day they do better and they feel better yeah um in your book, you ask at one point, uh, you know, as kind of a beginning question, if you had to make a one life choice right now to set yourself on the path to future health and happiness, what would it be, right? And then you go on to answer the question. Uh, but I, I usually, when I get a question like that in a book or an article, I pause and think what the answer is before I read the rest of it, right? And and I thought to myself. Um, so I know about gratitude and gratitude makes a ton of sense because you're focusing on what you what makes you happy. Hey, I am grateful yeah. that I have this good food or this good family or whatever. So when I read the question about what's the one thing that I would do, I thought, well, I would literally actively choose happiness. And it doesn't necessarily have to be just gratitude. I could just choose to be happy in almost any circumstance. Is that a, is that, is, does that make sense? But let me ask you, have you always been able to choose happiness? Like even when you're at your worst, when you're feeling just lousy, are you able to say, no, I'm gonna choose to be happy? Have you been able to do that? Well, yes and no. So first of all, I'm not, <laughs> I'm human. so. Of course, if you're in pain, you're in pain. If you're sick, you're exactly. sick, right? Of exactly. course. Uh, but at the same time, I'm a little different than the average bear. Uh, so I sometimes even focus on negative emotions or negative feelings and soak them in because they're also part of the life experience. Yes, yes. And, and you know, the reason why I'm, I'm sort of asking you about this a little bit is that first of all we we can't always be happy that it it isn't always a choice and the reason why I want to name that is that you know sometimes we are miserable our our happiness waxes and wanes and we can get the impression especially when you hear people like me talk you can get the impression that if you're not happy all the time you're just not doing the right things and that there are people out there who figured it out and they can be happy all the time, no matter what's going on in their life. That is just not true. Um, you know, I've studied thousands of people over eight decades and that is just not the truth of life. Yeah, and so I tell this to my kids, you, there is no such thing as like perfect luck and you're just gonna have great luck or or even neutral luck. No, you will have ups and downs, ups and downs. The question isn't whether you're gonna have ups and downs. The question is how you're going to handle those ups exactly. and downs. Does that exactly. make sense? Exactly. That yeah, you know, there John Cabot Zinn, you know, the meditation teacher, has a saying that I love. He says about that, about the ups and downs. You can't stop the waves, but you can learn how to surf. Yeah. And and it's probably counterproductive for people who care about this topic to tell everybody you could be happy all the time. Right? Exactly. I mean, it just makes us all feel guilty because we're not happy all the time and it's not gonna happen. <laughs> then you don't feel like you're a success, right? Yeah, yeah, and I'm then, failing at happiness, great. <laughs> <laughs> like, I was just trying to be happy 
Right, <laughs> oh, I've right. even failed at that. Right? No, you right. don't have to beat yourself up over it. Okay, one exactly. thing, one thing at a time, and that's counterproductive. Just do the best you can. And of course, everybody's in a different situation. And yes, and and money does matter, right? I mean, I've seen other studies. Where I don't want people to get the wrong impression. I, I've been uh, so poor that I had trouble paying the rent. In fact, I couldn't pay the rent, etc. And then I was not very happy. Uh, so yeah. Yeah. I've seen uh, the mark these days. Of course, it's going to fluctuate. But being around seventy to seventy-five thousand a year, have you have you seen that as well? Yeah, and and although we can, you know. We can talk about different amounts of money, but but basically that's the idea. And it, the idea is once we get our, we need to have our basic material needs met. Like you needed to be able to pay the rent, right? And put food on your table and maybe take care of a family, right? Or you weren't gonna be happy. But once we get those basic needs met, then making 10 times as much won't make us that much happier. And that's the important thing, that it really matters to get your basic needs met financially. But then beyond that, pursuing wealth isn't gonna make you happy. Yeah, in a sense, it's hard to be happy when you're fighting off a bear, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, but once you've ensured yeah. your survival, not your thriving, not extreme wealth, not any of that stuff, but just survival. Well, then now you're in the ballgame. And now you could figure yeah. out, you know, hey, what can I do to thrive instead of just survive? Is that a fair yeah. way of describing it? Yeah, exactly. And then it's a choice. I mean, you could decide you want to pursue making as much money as you can if that is if you if that's meaningful to you. Uh, but uh, but that's a choice. And most of us find most people find that pursuing money for its own sake leaves you kind of empty, and that the people who who pursue relationships. Uh, feel that life is more fulfilling. In fact, when we, when our original participants reached their 80s, we asked them to look back on their lives. And we said, as you look back on your life, what do you regret the most and what are you proudest of? And the biggest regrets were, I spent too much time working, not enough time with the people I cared about. And many women said, I spent too much time worrying about what other people thought. And then when we asked people what they were proudest of, it wasn't, I made a fortune, you know, I became a CEO, I became famous. It wasn't that at all. It was, I was a good boss, I was a good parent, I was a good partner, a good friend. So it was always about their relationships when they look back on what they were proudest of in their lives. So, but we've got a bit of an irony there, don't we? That we got to work through because we just said social connections are the key to happiness. But at the same time, when you have those connections, a lot of people, if not most people, get super stressed out about what others in the pack think of them. And yes. so, how do we navigate that balance? That's a really good point. And I think the you know the the relationships where we really thrive are relationships where we can more or less be ourselves so that means not being totally preoccupied with what someone else thinks of me but feeling like okay i'm okay in this person's eyes i can basically be myself i don't have to walk on eggshells because walking on eggshells in a relationship is exhausting and depleting yeah, well, you know, that's interesting. So a lot of, you know, uh, 
I mean, you'll see this everywhere. It's common. You'll see it in a mug. You'll see it in a, a quote on Instagram, if you will. Just be yourself, love yourself, etc. Right? Uh, but there's a lot of truth to that hokey saying, right? Because, yeah. uh, and the way I view it is, what you're doing is you're getting t in touch with your specific DNA. Like this is what I'm, what I'm made of. And if I serve yeah. the thing that interests me, I will have less friction internally and hence be happier. Is that a in right way of thinking about it? Absolutely, absolutely. That that's a, a way of learning to trust your own sense of what energizes you, what lights you up, what you care about, and then finding people who will accept that and maybe even celebrate it, uh, rather than people who want you to be somebody you're not. Yeah. So now let's get to a depressing topic. <laughs> okay. So let's do it. Can society ever fix itself? Because it is constantly sending us the wrong signals. I mean, we've yeah. talked about some versions of that already, and those are really important. Oh, you know, you gotta be richer, you gotta look better, you gotta be thinner, you gotta all these things, right? But not just that, but you gotta follow these rules, whether they're right for you or not right for you, okay? I come from an immigrant family, so you have to be a doctor, a lawyer, or a business person, etc., and you cannot exactly. be the other things. Yeah, if you yeah. believe in religion, religion has certain prescribed rules, and they might make sense for you, they might not make sense for you, but you gotta follow them either way. So can right. we as a society ever heal ourselves and our conventional wisdom that is constantly stressing people out? A lot has to do with openness to different possibilities. So, you know, when you when you study the same people over 80 years, right? What you see is one size never fits all. So that yes, from for some people, maybe this set of rules, whether it's religious rules or social rules, maybe that works really well. And, and often these rules do work well for a whole bunch of people. But the question is, is there room for variation? And that's really what we're talking about. And a lot of the struggles we have socially and politically are about whether we will allow room for variation based on what people need. And what people care about the most, and because you know the bottom line is one size does not fit all. Yeah, I mean, look, now we get into a tiny bit of politics here, but like these days and throughout history, some interpretations of religion say you should not be gay, you shouldn't be transgender, etc. But if you are gay, <laughs> well, that's going to create a massive friction, isn't it? And then you, when yeah. you see the suicide numbers in those communities. Aren't we just seeing that their that their software, in a sense, is conflicting with their hardware, and that's creating an intractable problem? Exactly, and we're saying we're often saying, make your hardware different. Like, don't be gay. Like, how could you know? What I loved is what Pete Buttigieg once said to Mike Pence. He said, "If you have trouble with my being gay, take it up with my maker." Right? Yep. They're both religious men. And you know the idea is this is my DNA. This is how I was made. And I think part of what we're aiming for is a society where people are allowed to be who they are, to be how they're made, and get to express most of that, as much of that as they can, as long as it doesn't harm others. All right, Professor. One more question. Um, so uh, we talked about it in the beginning. What's the first step? And I think a lot of people are curious about that. So if yeah. you, you know, say yeah. anybody watching right now, what would you recommend as the first step? 
Okay, we talk in the book about social fitness and we use that phrase as an analogy to physical fitness. The idea being that you know it's it's a practice, it's an ongoing practice. If you if you exercise today, you don't come home and say, good, I'm done. I don't ever have to do that again. And what we found is that it is the same with our social life, that it's a living thing that needs care. And so what I would say to people is, Notice the small ways that you can be active in connecting with other people each day. Literally each day, you could finish this episode and think to yourself, who would I like to connect with? Who have I not seen in a while? And just send them a text, send them an email, you know, pick up the phone and just say, just wanted to say hi and watch what comes back to you. And what you'll see is, okay, not every time, but most of the time, you will find that you get lots of positive energy back. People will be delighted that you reached out to them. And so what we find is that if you could make it a practice every day, every week to connect with people, maybe get together with one or more people, that you will find that you have and sustain a vibrant social life. All right, let me see if I can get one more agreement out of you. And this is about not about me, but my wife. She's a therapist and said something that I thought was incredibly wise. She said, your brain is like another muscle and you have to exercise it. So if you you know wanna get your muscles in shape, you do it every day. If you wanna get right habits, you have to exercise those habits and do it every day. Is that in essence what you're alluding to when you say, but do that but in social circles and in social connections. Exactly, she is incredibly wise. And that's what we're saying, that this is a habit we wanna develop just like we develop other good habits, just like we would brush our teeth, you know, or exercise or whatever the thing we, things we do every day are. Pay more attention to this, and this is the best investment in your well-being long-term that you can make. All right, uh, Dr. Robert Waldinger. Uh, from Harvard, author of The Good Life, uh, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. Thank you so much for joining us, we really appreciate it. This was a pleasure. Thank you.